everyone being here this evening. Most everybody was here this morning. So I kind of scanned the, the crowd, but uh, you're back again tonight. We really appreciate that. I think that demonstrates our interest in spiritual things and worshiping God and studying from His Word, encouraging each other. And we've tried to do that today. I hope that it's been effective and that we've been benefited by it. We're glad for your presence. Uh, we started talking last Sunday evening about uh, some characters involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, to those of us who believe the crucifixion of Jesus is really the most important event in human history because that provides atonement for our sin. And you know, if we're not right with God, if our sins are not atoned for and forgiven, well, it doesn't really matter how much material wealth we've got or it doesn't matter what kind of country we live in. None of those kinds of things matter. It doesn't matter who we're married to or how many children we've got. If we're not right with God, we really, we've, we've kind of uh, lost it all. And so the thing that makes that possible is the, is the cross, is the crucifixion. And so for us, it's the most important event in really not only our lives, but, but the history of the world. And I guess I could go so far as to say that whether you believe it or not, <laughs> the crucifixion is the most important event in, in human history. And so when we study uh, the cross, it's right that our focus is on Christ. And we try to do that every first day of the week. We come together and we spend a few minutes anyway, uh, not a lengthy period of time, perhaps, but a few minutes focused solely on the crucifixion of Jesus. We, we've done that today. And again, our, our, our focus is on Christ and what He went through and uh, various aspects of, of, that, of that event. But there are some other figures that are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus that it does us good to, to think about. We, we can kind of see ourselves sometimes in these people. They're regular people. They might hold an important office or be important one way or another. But, but they're regular folks, just regular people with all the flaws and all the, the good attributes that people have. And so we can look at these people and see how they react under these circumstances and learn some valuable lessons about how we ought to act or how we, we should not act. In fact, some have suggested that when we read about the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, it's not Jesus who's on trial. We, we know the character of Jesus. We, we know that He's a righteous man. Judas is on trial. You know, his character is to be revealed. Pilate is on trial. His character is, uh, is under investigation. His character will be revealed. It's, it's these other people that are really on trial. And what will they be? Where will they stand? What will they do? And we find ourselves in those positions as well. Tonight we're going to talk about Pontius Pilate. And so we're going to talk about Pilate and Jesus. Pilate is a, a leading figure in the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion. He's mentioned, according to my count, over 50 times in the New Testament, and all but two of those are in connection with the crucifixion of Christ. And Jesus' interaction with Pilate in those events leading up to the crucifixion. Now we don't know very much about Pilate outside the New Testament. Josephus writes about Pilate, and Philo, who's another first century Jewish philosopher, he writes about Pilate. And so we know some information, at least as they evaluate Pilate, from those sources but outside of those sources, and maybe a mention or two elsewhere, we know very little about Pilate. 
Now, his name is mentioned in a couple of important archaeological finds. There was, in recent years, a, a find called the Pilate Stone, in which his name is engraved on a stone, and, and his title is included. So that gives us some extra-biblical corroboration of not only the man, Pilate, as a historical figure, but what office did he occupy? And then a ring has been found as well with Pilate's name on it. And so, and so those two important archaeological finds support uh, the historical figure Pilate. The, the description in, in Josephus and Philo, they're, they're not flattering of Pilate. In fact, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But that's interesting that really most everything we know about Pilate is found in Scripture in connection with his, his role in the crucifixion of Jesus. In other words, he's famous for one thing. <laughs> Pilate is famous for one thing, his role in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, that, that's kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> that, that if all that, in all your life, you're known for one thing, and it's the crucifixion of this innocent man, the righteous man, the, the Son of God. But, but that's true. If you've studied, and most of us have, in high school, if not, not beyond, if you, if you study tragic literature, if you study a tragedy of some kind, you know that the leading figures often have a, a, a serious character flaw. Now, Pilate has a character flaw. He's a leading figure in the story of this tragedy, the, the crucifixion of Christ. Now, Pilate doesn't die in the crucifixion, but Jesus does, and he contributes to that. But Pilate has a character flaw. Well, let's see if we can figure out what it is. You think about that. Think along with me, and we'll try to figure out what his flaw is. And hopefully, we'll look at ourselves and see if we can find it in ourselves. If so, we need to, to get it out. Let's think a little bit about the historical figure, Pilate. He served as prefect or kind of a governor of Judea from the years 26 to 36. And so he's the governor of Judea during the ministry of Jesus. Again, the characterizations of him outside the Bible are not flattering. They're not very good. They sort of characterize him as a stubborn Man, he's insensitive to Jewish scruples. And so he's, he's not a Jew, but he's governing Jews. So sometimes he does things that are contrary to what they think is right, but he doesn't care that they don't think it's right. He's going to do what he wants to do anyway. So he's sort of insensitive to their scruples. He's harsh and sometimes even violent against them. We'll see that in just a moment. Some people suggest that since he did hold this office for 10 years, he must have been, at least in some ways, an effective governor. And that may be, that may be true, I suppose. But again, that's not what he's noted for. He's noted for his interaction with Christ. Now, in Luke chapter 13, in one of the references to Pilate, not in connection with the crucifixion of Jesus, we find a, a, a violent, he's involved in a violent act. And so verse 1 says, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said, Do you not suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this face? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Jesus' comments, but here's a reference to an action of Pilate. He says that, he mixed the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices. 
So apparently a group of people had come down from Galilee to Jerusalem in order to worship or to sacrifice at the temple. And for some reason, there's no reference to this outside the Bible. For some reason, Pilate sent some soldiers amongst them, maybe in plain clothes, so that when they were involved in the sacrifice, these, these soldiers killed them drew out their daggers and, and killed them, and in that sense, mixed their blood with their sacrifice. That kind of gives us some insight on what kind of man Pilate was. He wasn't a nice guy, you know. Like we said, he's insensitive to Jewish scruples, he's uncooperative, he's stubborn, and, and, uh, and on occasion, violent. So almost all our knowledge about Pilate comes from the gospel accounts of the trials of Jesus. There's some from outside sources, but uh, certainly dependable information in the New Testament about Pilate. So let's read a little bit about Pilate and his interaction with Christ in the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish leaders uh, were seeking opportunity to do away with Christ. We talked about that last week in connection with, with Judas, and so we're going to kind of pick up in the in the middle of the story. Mark 15 and verse 10 notes that it was because of envy that the Jewish leaders had, had uh, taken Jesus, had seized Him, and taken, taken Him to Pilate. In John chapter 13, we read that they're afraid of what Jesus might do. Jesus is gaining a following of Jews. They're very excited about being His disciples. Many of Jesus' followers have mistaken notion about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And so, in John chapter 11, I think I said 13 a minute ago, but it's chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and, and saw what it had done believed in Him, believed, believed in Christ. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. He would raised Lazarus from the dead. Therefore the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I have no doubt they're thinking in political terms. Now this man's going to get up a big following, and they're going to cause trouble for us with the Romans. And, and, and if, they, if they cause problems, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to clamp down on us. And whatever independence we have to govern ourselves, they're going to take away. So they're going to take away our place and our position uh, to, 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 to rule our, our authority. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And so they're afraid. Uh, they deliver him over for envy, but they're also afraid of what Jesus' disciples might do. They're afraid the Romans might come in and take away their place and take away their nation. So they seize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they convene uh, the council, and they bring charges against Jesus. The charge is blasphemy which is a capital offense according to Jewish law. Now, Jesus is tried and convicted. He, he's uh, found guilty of committing blasphemy. Now, He does make Himself equal with God, but if you look at the evidence, that's true. He is equal with God. So, it's not blasphemy for Jesus to claim equality with God. It's, it's fact. 
But they consider him an imposter, guilty of blasphemy, making himself equal with God. And so they convict him, and they sentence him to death. This man is worthy of death. But the Jews don't have the right to execute their, their criminals. They have to get that permission from the Romans. The Romans really have the ultimate authority and power over the Jews at, at that particular time. And so they take him to Pilate. Now Pilate's the governor. He's the prefect of Judea. And so they take him to Pilate. And they accuse Jesus of three things before Pilate. See that in Luke chapter 23. In fact, might as well turn over there because we're going to spend a, a good bit of time there in Luke chapter 23. And so they, they bring him to Pilate, verse 1 says. And then verse 2, they began to accuse him. We found this man misleading our nation. What does that mean? Well, we might get some insight if you look over at verse 14 where Pilate is responding to the charges. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. So that, that's, that's the charge. He's disturbing the people. He's inciting them to rebellion. He's stirring them up. He's a rabble rouser, something like that. He's, 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 he's posing a problem and a threat for the government. He, he teaches people not to pay their taxes. Of course, we know that's the opposite of what Jesus taught. And he claims to be a king. Now, now, the Roman government, they can't allow people running around claiming to be king, inciting the people to resist the government, not paying their taxes. And so I'm sure the Jewish leaders are confident. We accuse him of these things. Pilate's going to get upset and he's going to let us execute him. But, but Pilate doesn't act so quickly or hastily. And so he decides to investigate the matter. He interviews Jesus. I think he, he seems to interview him three times. And let's see how that plays out. Beginning in verse 3, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, sa he answered him, said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting in Galilee, even as far as this place. Are you, are you, are, do you claim to be a king? Well, is, is, uh, well and then Pilate comes out, I, I find no crime in this man. Let's skip to verse 12. Pilate sends, we're going to pick up in verse 13, but Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod interviews Jesus and, and sends him back after finding nothing in him worthy of death. And then verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and rulers and the people. So there's a, a second time. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner, and they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. So Barabbas really was an insurrectionist and a violent man. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I find no guilt, in, no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. 
But they were insistent with loud voices asking that He be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate announced, pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. He released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But He delivered Jesus to their will. So you read through there and you see Pilate talking with Jesus, interviewing Jesus, asking Him questions, listening to responses. And he says three times that this man hasn't done anything worthy of death. I find no, no guilt in this man. So, so Pilate knows, doesn't he? He knows. He's heard the charges, but he's investigated, and he knows Jesus, Jesus is not guilty. Now if you go to Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew adds a couple of things that, that Luke omits. In Matthew 27 and verse 19, Matthew tells us that the wife of Pilate came to him and sent him, or sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. And so Pilate's wife, Pilate's wife knows that he's a righteous man, that he's innocent of the charges, and she tries to persuade her husband to release him and, and to let him go. And then Matthew adds one other thing as well, beginning in verse 24. Right at the end of this episode, Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, rather that a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people responded, His blood be on us and our children. So keep that in mind. We're going to refer to that a little bit later. Go over to John's Gospel, and we'll read through John's account of Pilate's interaction with Jesus. Very similar to what Luke says, but, but in some ways it's different. So this is John chapter 18. We'll pick up in verse 33. Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to, them, or said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? That's similar to what he says in, in, Pilate, in, in Luke's account. And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, Now I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. Well, what, what have you done? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king, for this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Now everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So here's his first interview. Talks to Jesus, asks him some questions, listens to Jesus' response, and he goes out, especially I think when he hears, my kingdom is not of this world. Look, I'm not a threat to Caesar. I'm not trying to take over Caesar's throne. I have a kingdom, of course, but it's not of this world. Okay. And so he goes out, I find no crime in him. I find no, no guilt in him. Well, the Jews continue to insist. And so chapter 19, verse 1 Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know 
that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law you ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he goes in and he interviews Jesus once, once again, talks to him some more. And so we've seen from Luke and from John, Pilate understands the situation. He knows that they've delivered him over because they're envious of him. He's talked to Jesus. He's investigated the case. He can see that Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of death. And so he wants to let him go. He knows that Jesus is in, innocent. He, he says as much. He says it on multiple occasions. Luke tells us in Luke 23 and verse 20, he wants to release Jesus. Now that's interesting. Here's Pilate. He can see Jesus is innocent. And he wants to release him. In John 19 and verse 12, says he tries to release him. <laughs> Uh, on multiple occasions. Let's think about what Pilate did in an effort to release Jesus. He tries to pass him off to Herod. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with this case. Oh, you're from Galilee? Okay, you go, you go, go to Herod. And maybe that way I get rid of this, this thorny situation. He offers them Barabbas. Surely here's a man everybody knows. He's violent. He's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. Surely they'll choose Jesus and I'll retain Barabbas. And so he's trying to release Jesus in that way, but doesn't work. And then on multiple occasions, he says, look, I'll punish him. I'll punish him and let him go. No, no, not good enough. Crucify him. And so none of his efforts work. And in the end, as we saw a moment ago, Pilate yields to their demands. Here's a, brings a, calls for a basin of water and washes his hands. We kind of get that expression, I'm washing my hands of the matter. I don't want anything to do with it. You, you see to it yourselves. Do with him as you will. And of course, Jesus is taken and crucified. Sometime after the crucifixion, Pilate's called back to Rome. And he just fades, just disappears from the pages of history. What's, what's Pilate's flaw? <laughs> what's his character flaw? You know, Macbeth. He's ambitious. That's his flaw. It leads him to do all kinds of things he shouldn't do. Hamlet, he can't make a decision. <laughs> King Lear, he's self-absorbed. Romeo, what, what's Romeo's flaw? He's impulsive, isn't he? Doesn't think about the con long-term consequences of his decisions. And so all, the, all these stories, yeah, there's their flaw. Well, what's Pilate's flaw? Well, maybe you think, well, you know, Pilate just, he can't see. He's just blinded. He can't see the truth. No. No, he, he can see the truth, can't he? Jesus, Jesus is an innocent man. He can see that. Anybody? Lots of people see that. Well, he can't decide what to do. That, that's his flaw. He can't make a decision about what to do with Jesus. No, no, it's not it. He knows what to do. <laughs> he tries to do it, in fact. Well, what's his flaw? He's too weak to do what he knows to be right. That, that's his flaw, isn't it? He, he, he doesn't have the strength of character. 
to follow through and do what he knows is right. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows he ought to be released. Tries to release him, but when he faces opposition, he's too weak to say, look, he's innocent, I'm releasing him, I don't care what you say, you know. Just doesn't have the strength to do that. He's weak, he's afraid, and so as a result of that, when he's challenged, he yields and becomes one of the most offensive figures in history, you know. Who wants to be Pilate? Anybody here want to be like Pilate? Nobody wants to be like Pilate. He's a weakling, isn't he? In the final analysis, he doesn't have the strength to do what he knows is right. Now, I suppose we could just stop right there, and I hope you would get the point. (laughs) Have the strength to do what you know is right. I really think most of the time our problem is not knowledge of right and wrong. We, We know what's right. And we know what we ought to do. We, we just don't follow through. We, we just don't do it. We don't have the strength or the courage or the determination or whatever it is to do what's right when we know the right thing to do. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 17, that the, the man who knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Pilate is a good example of the old saying, All that's needed for evil to prevail. You know that saying? All that's needed for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. That's what you see in the case of Pilate. All that was needed in the case of Pilate for evil to prevail, Jesus, an innocent man crucified, all that he needed to do was nothing. And so Jesus was sent to the cross. And that's true of us. All that's needed for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Now Jesus demands that we have the determination to follow Him no matter the obstacle. What was Pilate's character flaw? Too weak to do what he knew was right. Jesus demands we have the determination to follow Him no matter what the obstacle might be. There are lots of passages that illustrate the point. Perhaps Matthew chapter 10 is a good place to begin. Matthew chapter 10 And beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And man's enemies will be the members of his household. But he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Look, I I demand complete commitment. You must love me more than father or mother or children or friends. You must love me. I've got to have first place in your life. So Jesus demands that we determine to follow him no matter what the obstacle is. Matthew 19, we read about the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Apparently, you know, yes, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? He's interested. He wants, he wants Jesus to answer the question. But when Jesus says, sell everything you got, give it away, and come follow me, he's just not willing to make that commitment, is he? And so he doesn't have that strength of character, that determination to give up, to separate himself from the things that he loves and follow Jesus. In the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, we read of three potential disciples of Jesus. The first one said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, 
You know, wherever I go, really? <laughs> you know, the foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. Son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. I mean, is that what you're willing to do? You're willing to go to those links to follow me? And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said, well, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You, you make a commitment, there's no going back. And so that's the kind of commitment that Jesus requires of us. Now consider the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, Paul says, I've lived in all good conscience up to this day. I've tried to do the right thing in, in, in all of my life. I, I've, I've lived in good conscience. If I thought that something was right, I, I tried my best to do that. And that, that was true even before he became a Christian, even when he was persecuting the church. He thought he was doing the right thing. Now, he's uninformed. He was doing the wrong thing. But, but he lived in all good conscience up to, this, up to that day. And then he becomes a Christian, and he gives up everything to know Christ. That's what his conscience demanded of him at that point. If I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to follow Jesus... That means I need to be willing to give up everything to know Him. You remember in Philippians chapter 3, how he described himself, all the advantages he enjoyed, circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. I'm willing to give up it all of it to know Christ. And that's the kind of commitment that is required of a, a disciple of Christ. And he gave all that up to become what? 1 Corinthians 4 verse 11, the offscouring of all things, the scum of the earth. <laughs> In other words, something like that. It's a paraphrase. And Paul was not the only one among the disciples of Jesus to make that kind of commitment. In Matthew chapter 19, in the sort of the follow-up to the story of the rich young ruler, remember Peter follows up by saying, Jesus says, you know, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter says, you know, we, we've left everything to follow you. We, we've left everything. Now, the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do that. And Peter kind of in, in distinction says... We've left everything to follow you. And so there's a challenge before us. Consider the evidence. If Jesus is the Christ, the evidence suggests that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. Have the will, the strength of character, the determination to follow Him wherever He goes. It may be difficult, we'll be challenged at times. We'll have to make some tough decisions. But in the end, of course, we'll, we'll be happy that we did. So we're going to be like Pilate, you know, when the pressure got put on and he faced a challenge, he doesn't have the strength of character to do what he knows is right. Or we're going to be like these other faithful disciples who when the pressure is put on, they follow Christ faithfully no matter what the price might be. Have the determination to live a holy life even when those around us don't. Have the commitment and the determination and the will to live a holy, godly life, 
even when those around us don't live that kind of life. You know, the contrast between a godly life and a worldly life has always been stark, hasn't it? The, the contrast between the two. It's always been a pretty clear distinction. Here's a godly life and here's an ungodly life. And you can see those things compared to each other in, in, in the New Testament and in Scripture. But it sure seems as time goes on, it's becoming more and more, more and more stark. And uh, the challenge is greater and greater. And so have the determination, have the will, have the strength to live a godly life, even when those around us don't. The world around us is motivated by such things as greed and lust and pride and ambition. We, we know those passages, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the vain glory of life. It's not of the fathers from the world. So, so we know what motivates the world, lust and pride and ambition and greed and, and those kinds of things. Lust produces all sorts of sensuality and sexual sin, everything from, from fornication to dressing in a sexually provocative way. And that, that's all around us. That's, that's all around us in, in the world around us. And so have the strength of character to, to, in a world that's motivated by lust and sensuality, to live a godly life. Now that takes some strength of character. It's not an easy thing to do, to dress modestly when nobody else around us is. Now that, that's not easy to do, that's hard to do. But have the strength of character, have the will to do it. Greed produces all sorts of dishonesty and stealing and the sacrifice of strong relationships. What I mean by that is, you know, a father who just wants a little more, a little nicer, a little newer, a little bigger, will sacrifice spending time that he needs to spend with his family out working to acquire more and more. And so he's sacrificing these relationships he should be nurturing because he just wants more. And that's what covetousness will do for us. Spiritual neglect and all sorts of things. Have the strength of character when you see that, that shiny object to say, to say no, I, I don't need that. What I need to do is spend time with my children. And what I need to do is nurture my family. And what I need to do is be a spiritual leader in my family. Pride produces selfishness and lack of sympathy, disregard for the needs of others. You know, everything is about me. And so I don't really care that much about others as long as I get what I want and I have my needs fed, fed and met and all of those kinds of things. And so pride produces that kind of thing. Ambitious produces all sorts of evil. The world is a profane and self-indulgent place full of anger and jealousy and hatred and violence. You know what? The world is not content to practice these things itself. But it seeks to draw us in, to draw us in so that we become like the world. And so when you feel that pressure to conform, do what Paul tells Timothy to do. 1 Timothy 5 verse 22, keep yourself pure. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 1, perfect holiness 
in the fear of the Lord. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Paul tells Timothy to be an example in word. And so don't, don't be drawn in to the use of inappropriate language, profanity and obscenity and all those sorts of things have the will and the determination to live a godly life and sexual behavior, live a pure life, be content with what you have, clothe yourself with humility. As I said before, most of us know the kind of lifestyle we should lead. I, I just, I think that's right. Most of us know right from wrong. <laughs> we know it's wrong to use profanity. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to be sexually immoral. We, we know all of those things. It's just do we have the will to do it? Pilate knew what was right. He knew the right thing to do. But when the pressure was put on, he just didn't have the strength to do what he knew was right. And then the final point we'll make is this. Have the, the determination, the will to defend the faith when it's challenged. Be willing to stand up and defend the faith when, when it's challenged. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, you remember, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to make a defense when you're asked concerning the hope that's in you. Have, have we ever remained silent when we knew we should have spoken up? Maybe the tone of the conversation was insulting to the gospel or insulting to Christians. Or, or maybe a person was being aggressive against the faith. Or, or maybe we were just too timid or lacked the confidence to speak up. Have we ever been intimidated into silence when we know or knew we should have spoken? Well, be prepared to give a response and have the will to do it. Always being ready to give an answer, to defend the gospel. Now, I, I don't know that we need to know technical, philosophical arguments for the existence of God, but we need an argument. You know? We need to be able to defend the existence of God. We need to be able to say, well, I believe in God because. Or when the conversation turns against the gospel, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God because. Or when people begin to criticize the Bible and, and denigrate at you. Well, I, I believe in the Bible. I believe the Bible is the Word of God because. And again, I'm not, I'm not asking for sophisticated technical arguments and going on and on and on. I just say you need an argument. <laughs> you need to be able to speak up and defend the gospel. I'm not asking people to be able to answer every religious question that somebody might ask. But we do need to have an answer for the hope that's in us, and be able to make a defense and give an explanation as to why we believe. It's not even a matter of persuading others to convert. I'm not, we're not asking that. <laughs> well, I, don't, I just don't know. I don't think I can win that. We're not asking you to win. What I'm asking you to do is give a defense of the gospel. I believe because. That's, not, that's what Pilate was not willing to do. He knew the truth. Jesus was innocent. He could see that. He, he even he was capable of making a good, good decision. He tried to release him. We've met resistance. He just didn't have the will 
to carry through. If I were to ask, who wants to be like Pilate? Not a single hand would be raised. I'm confident of that. But the fact is, we may be more like Pilate than we want to admit. And we hope that's not the case. And if it is the case, we hope that we'll remedy that. And so, let's work on that. We said in the very beginning, sometimes we see ourselves in these characters, maybe more than we want to, to think. But if we do, there's really, there's not an, an unsolvable problem. If we do, you know, I'm like Pilate. Well then, okay, let me fix that. Let me, let me do what I need to do to be better. To have that will and determination to do what I know is right. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful again for the opportunity today to gather together and worship you. And we pray, Father, that our efforts have been pleasing to you. Father, it's good for us to be here. It gives us an opportunity to examine ourselves in light of your word. And in light of that word, to see where we need to improve. Father, give us the will. Help us to develop the will, the strength of character, the determination, the resolve to do what we know is right. Even when it's difficult, even when we're challenged, even if there are consequences to suffer because of it. Help us to do what we know is right. Father, we're thankful for your word that it directs us and guides us and informs us as to what's right. Help us to read it and understand it and open our hearts to receive it so that we will know how we ought to conduct ourselves as life goes forward. Father, give us the strength, be patient with us, have mercy on us, and to help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here to